You're listening to the Blue Family Tree Podcast. We're here to help you rob the pension bank. It's your host, coming to you from Colorado, Patrick Rice. Welcome back to this episode of the Blue Family Tree. Just like she said, our goal here is to keep you alive well into retirement. Take that pension bank for every last cent you can, and in order to do so, we give you a few things to think about that will help keep you alive and get you home safe at the end of every shift. It's no secret that there's definitely a life cycle for a police officer. There's your 21-year-old police cadet, and then there's your 65-year-old retiree. And there's everybody in between. Absolutely, the things you read about uh, on your social media pages, the funny little quips about the rookies and the salty dogs, they come from somewhere. There is no lie about it. I'm going to walk you through my career real quick. I've been in law enforcement for 21 years, and I've got 16 to go. No, I'm not going to be that 65-year-old retiree, but I will be that 60-year-old retiree. I've sworn to myself, no matter how bad I need the money, I'm not working this job one day past 60. As a matter of fact, on my day before my 60th birthday is my official retirement date. That is the date that I will be leaving law enforcement for good. So I started the police academy in 1998. I went to a small private police academy in the Denver area in Colorado. And for those of you who aren't familiar with how Colorado works, because I know a lot of states do it differently, Colorado has kind of a mixed bag. Some of the bigger departments require you to go to their own academy. uh, But most departments in Colorado will just hire you after you've put yourself through an academy and you become post-certified and then... Uh, you start putting out applications. So I wasn't really too interested in the bigger departments uh, when I was 21 that required you to go to their academy. So I put myself through the academy uh, in 98. I turned 21 in 98. I actually turned 21 while I was in the police academy. Uh, I started the academy then, of course, as a 20-year-old young man and uh, just starting my career and excited to be going. Uh, All I wanted to do was go out and help people. I wanted to go be a positive and effective part of my community. And I I just wanted nothing more than to see justice served. So while I was in the police academy, uh, I actually had the pleasure of becoming the president of my academy. Now, don't get too excited for me. It was a pretty small academy. There was uh, somewhere between 15 to 20 of us in my class And uh, because of my military background and my ability to march, uh, I think is why I got selected as president because uh, the president was going to, at least initially, be the person who led the uh, lessons basically in how to march. And marching, albeit, was a very, very, very small part of a private uh, police academy in Colorado at the time, but it was a part of it. And so that's how I got selected for the position of president. Uh, I did, however, maintain that position throughout the academy And uh, I also maintained some lifelong friends from that academy who I now see uh, retiring and moving on, doing uh, bigger, better things with their lives in their later years. And it's amazing to me to think that the guys I went to the academy with back in 98, when we weren't even rookies, uh, we were begging for jobs and and scraps off of of, uh, friends' tables, more or less, are now retiring from their agencies. That's crazy. 
And there was one narcissist student, but, you know, you, you get those guys in the police academy and in the police departments, and they're usually the ones that kind of make the rest of us look bad over time. They, they kind of start to shine. And we absolutely had one of those in our academy. And as president, unfortunately, most of the time you don't do much of anything except look good and maybe make a speech at graduation. But in this case, I had to follow some set up rules and guidelines on how to handle this student who wasn't passing his co- his classes, uh, was failing at tests, was showing up late or not at all. And uh, it was my job to document that, bring it to the uh, academy staff and have them address it. Uh, I'm proud to say to this day that that uh, individual never became a police officer. He never graduated from our academy. And we do weed out the sour apples when we see them. So uh, there's nobody that hates a bad cop worse than a good cop. And even though we weren't police, we were going down that line at the time, and we weren't going to allow uh, rotten apples to be coming from our academy. Yeah, so I certainly wasn't the best at anything in the academy. I wasn't the best shooter. I wasn't the best driver. I didn't have the highest academic scores, but uh, I certainly had, I think, a level of passion above uh, what most people did. I was just really super excited to be there and be a part of it. And uh, I think that's just carried through my career right up here to the Blue Family Tree podcast, uh, along with everything in between. And and the fact that I have lifelong friends from the academy who I talk to on a regular basis who give to the Blue Family Tree. Uh, and none of them have friends uh, outside of uh, uh, our academy except for through me. So I, I definitely had a thread of brotherhood and camaraderie that I carried with me through the academy and uh, and kept in contact with those guys uh, clear now, 20, 21 years, 22 years later. We even had one guy who, uh, after getting his Colorado post, he applied around for a little bit and never got hired in Colorado. Uh, it was a pretty tough, tough job market in Colorado in 1998 for police, so... He was from the New York area. He went back and he actually got hired on with NYPD where he worked for a few years before he decided uh, that was enough for him. But I understand that's fairly common for NYPD officers to have a fairly short career span. Uh, So he moved on to bigger and better things, got out of law enforcement after just a few years. And, uh, but most of the guys, they stuck around the Denver area, worked for uh, the surrounding Denver departments. I actually met my wife while we were in the academy and uh well she wasn't in the academy but i uh, i met her she was heading home one weekend from college and she's driving through the denver area and she stopped with some friends to uh get a drink it happened to be my the, the night of my 21st birthday so at midnight i was going to be turning 21 it was a sunday and of course we had a test in uh the academy on monday morning but i didn't care it was my 21st birthday so we went out to the Grizzly Rose in Denver, Colorado, and we were dancing to some country music, and midnight came around, it was time for a beer, and uh, I met my wife there that night. Little did I know at the time she was going to be my wife, but uh, we hit it off. We talked on the phone for the next four days, and then that Friday, uh, she actually came back up through town, and she came to uh, the academy and got drunk for our standard field sobriety testing. So the second time I ever met her was uh, she was getting drunk for my class, and the first time I ever met her was in a bar. <laughs> so yeah, don't get the wrong idea, friends. Uh, we're uh, not just drunk floozies, but um, yeah, we, we had a good time, and it was a great place to meet her and 
she's been with me the whole road since. So uh, she's every bit of a cop wife from beginning to end. She tries to uh, be humble about that a little bit, but uh, it's true also what they say and what you hear about cop wives and military wives. Uh, Sorry, guys. I know that there's some cop husbands out there. Yeah, there's definitely some social pull for uh, cop wives. She's tried to avoid a lot of that over the years, but some of it's unavoidable. Uh, You know, I hope to have her on the show at some point and have her talk about this, but the uh, wife groups are spectacular. They come from a a great idea. They come uh, out of, you know, people's hearts with nothing but great intentions. They can also have a a double-edged sword. There's some sometimes some issues with the wife groups uh, where the officers on their side are not dealing with kind of the same issues and uh, the wife groups can get a little a little rough at times and so she's struggled with that over the years just like I've struggled uh, with issues within the department but uh, yeah she's she's been my rock she's stuck with me through a lot a few other things happened while I was in the academy there was a, a Denver police officer named Bruce Vanderjacht uh, who died while I was in the police academy. And uh, Officer Vanderjacht had done everything right. And here here we were in the academy learning skills and tactics and case law and criminal law and the whole you know nine yards, everything you learn in the academy. And we get a firsthand look at Bruce Vanderjacht's uh, passing as uh, some of our instructors were from the Denver area and knew uh, Bruce Vanderjacht very well. And everybody spoke extraordinarily highly of Officer Vanderjack. Now, I understand uh, in the wake of someone's passing, we always speak highly of them. But I'm here to tell you, I haven't heard anybody say a negative word about uh, Officer Vanderjack and his tactics uh, in the last 21 years. He was a cop's cop, uh, very tactically oriented. And uh, he was pie in a corner looking for a suspect. Uh, I believe it was in an armed carjacking. And uh, as he pied the corner, the suspect was sitting underneath a, a, a flight of stairs where you could see between the stairs uh, in an apartment complex. And uh, so he was underneath those stairs looking between the stairs. And uh, Officer Vanderjack just missed him just enough. Uh, and he actually, uh, uh, my understanding is, took a shot uh, pretty much right into the eye as he was pieing that corner. So he just barely exposed himself as he was supposed to. And uh, just wasn't quite quite quick enough uh, on the suspect. So that was kind of a startling one to start my career out with. It's the first line of duty death that I really paid attention to. I had seen others in the news here and there as I was growing up or over the last few years as a teenager. But I had never really studied or paid attention. So for the first one to really pay attention to, to be somebody so honorable and so on his game, was a little startling for me. It's a hard way to start my career. Also, now remember, I went to the academy in the North Denver area, and Columbine High School was in basically the West Denver area, just a few minutes away. Columbine happened while I was in the police academy and completely changed the way that we did business. There aren't many of you left out there, but there's some uh, pre-Columbine police officers out there. I consider myself pre-Columbine only uh, in the sense that I received training Uh, in how to isolate and maintain and wait for SWAT 
And then very quickly after my academy, that training began to change. So uh, everything about active shooter, as a matter of fact, the phrase active shooter didn't exist until Columbine High School happened. Uh, Before that, it was just an active situation. It was something in progress. It was a mass problem. But uh, we didn't have a phrase. We didn't have training. All we did was isolate and hold so that nobody outside of the scenario was in any more danger. Uh, But when you start to have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who are inside the scenario who you can't do anything for, that's where we started changing our tactics and developing the active shooter uh, style tactics. Yeah, so that was quite quite the way to start my career. It was a pretty rough couple of months just still in the academy trying to figure out uh, what the heck we're doing and what kind of career we're getting into. But after you graduate the academy in, uh, in Colorado, again, if, you, if you're going to a private academy, the next thing you do is you just saturate the market with applications. And again, at that time, uh, it wasn't uncommon for there to be two or 3,000 applications for one or two positions in, a, in an agency, uh, depending on what agencies you were looking at. You know, if you're looking at the bigger agencies, Fort Collins, Boulder, Denver, Colorado Springs, uh, you might be looking at five or 6,000 applications for one or two positions. Uh, that wasn't uncommon at all back in, in the late 90s. Unfortunately, now, uh, as a lot of you know, that's kind of flip-flopped. We can hardly get enough good applicants to fill the spots that we have. So the whole process of applying for a police job was a lot different uh, back then. But I did just like everybody else, just saturated the market with applications and waited to see what came in. And uh, I I got hired with a little department, a little like four-man department uh, north of Denver basically uh, the last suburb of Denver before you're you're out into the sticks. It was a very uh, difficult department to be a part of. They uh, were a very much a good old boys club, and uh, they weren't real interested in having me there. Uh, but I did still get uh, some, some of my first evers out of there. I had my first traffic stop, of course, when I was with that agency. And I'm sure just like many of you, your first traffic stop is something you'll never forget. Uh, I I remember walking up to the door feeling like I had done something wrong. My heart racing, pounding out of my chest, uh, trying to remember the words I'm going to say and trying not to stutter. Yeah, that first traffic stop, uh, boy, it, it sure feels different than even the second. Uh, once you get that first one out of the way, things things calm down a little bit. But uh, I remember it was it was so hard for me that after the traffic stop, we gave uh, we gave the people warning. I, I don't I remember it was a. Uh, a small family of people, um, and I I couldn't even begin to tell you what we stopped them for, probably speeding or a lane violation. But I had held on to their license, registration, and insurance, and my trainer and I are sitting there in the car trying to figure out why they aren't driving away. And uh, so finally, uh, after several minutes, they finally we're just about to get out and go ask them what what the holdup is. They finally drive away. And just as soon as they pull away from the curb, I realize that I still have their thing. So now, now I get to pull them over again. First, I have to tell my trainer, oh, I held on to their things. And then second, I have to pull them over again to give them back. So uh, yeah, that was a, an interesting stop. But it all, it all was downhill from there. Everything got better. Uh, everything was a little easier once, once things got rolling. By the end of FTO uh, at that department, I didn't feel very comfortable and I knew that they didn't feel real comfortable with me. So I decided it was time that we, I part ways and, uh, 
shotgun out a whole lot more applications, see what else I can find. So after a few short months there, I'm back on my own looking for a job. And uh, I ended up applying to the Grand County Sheriff's Office. Grand County is up in the mountains, like right on the Continental Divide in beautiful Colorado. And it's a tourist area for a lot of people. Uh, a lot of second homes up there. The uh, the actual population of the county, I think, is below 10,000 or was at the time uh, back in, uh, this would have been in 1999 now. And uh, so, yeah, the, the actual residential population is very low, but the summer visiting population and the winter ski population was enormous. Uh, as a matter of fact, Winter Park Ski Resort is in that county. Uh, Winter Park is actually owned by the city of Denver, so there was be some unique circumstances where you'd be two hours outside of Denver city limits and you could receive a uh, Denver municipal ordinance uh, citation for whatever you might have done uh, on the grounds of Winter Park. So, yeah, kind of an interesting little um, bit to kind of learn the differences between jurisdictions and how things like that work. So at any rate, uh Grand County, there was a gentleman named Glenn Trainer, who's actually now the um, chief in uh, Winter Park. But uh, at the time, he was the undersheriff in Grand County, and he's the one that hired me. And uh, he actually didn't hire me into patrol. He hired me uh, to the jail. So I started in the jail. I worked there just a few months. And then an opportunity came up on patrol, and I jumped right into it. So got on to patrol and uh, started that FTO program again. And uh, I actually really enjoyed FTO in Grand County. One of my FTOs, his name was Rick Stegman. He's still a good friend of mine today. And uh, he just cracked me up, and, but he, he kept me serious at the same time. He, he had an amazing talent for uh, keeping things light and fun. And um, his sick, twisted sense of humor never failed to uh, come out on every shift. Uh, he would roll up the windows and tell me I could not roll them down or open the door. And then he would commence on eating pickled eggs for the rest of the shift. Uh, yeah, so you can imagine what that car was like when I finally did get out. But uh, he also had a great sense of uh, officer safety and how to speak with people, how to talk to witnesses and victims and suspects. And the first stop that I ever found dope on was with Rick. Uh, we made a traffic stop for something and we, we sensed some behavior and some statements from the drivers, the driver that wasn't making sense. And uh, we, one thing led to another, and we ended up searching the vehicle and found some uh, drugs in the car. And this was when I realized this shit really happens. People really drive around with dope. <laughs> yeah, you know, at some point, every rookie has to have that realization wait a minute, this isn't just something I've been training for and been studying and been told about. It actually happens, and here it is. And it was happening just exactly like how uh, I had been taught in the academy. So that was really cool to see everything that I had been taught up to that point unfolding in front of me. But beyond that, a lot of what happened in uh, Grand County was uh, bears and moose and things like that, keeping the bears and the moose away from the people. Uh, making sure that everybody was safe and with regards of how they were boating or how they were snowmobiles and all sorts of stuff like that. So it was definitely a recreational area with a lot of other things going on, but we did have our fair share of problems here and there. I remember my first 
vehicle pursuit was when I was in Grand County. It was a stolen car. It was a little BMW. And it ran from me when I lit it up. And we chased uh, for about 13 miles. We ended up at a place called the Grand Lake Lodge. This is July. The Grand Lake Lodge in July is always packed. All sorts of tourists are up there uh, enjoying their summer and eating at the Grand Lake Lodge. So here it was, just about lunchtime, and this pursuit ends in the parking lot of the Grand Lake Lodge. Here's Here I am, a 21, 22-year-old, something like that, maybe 23, but a brand new cop, and I'm uh, chasing this, this kid that stole this car. We end up in this parking lot. Uh, I jump out, and I grab my shotgun. To this day, I don't know why I did that, but I jumped out, and I grabbed my shotgun. I think I think it's because I was so jacked being in a vehicle pursuit for the first time. And I didn't know what this guy was going to do. Was he going to run somewhere and hide and shoot at me? And for whatever reason in my rookie mind, I thought I better have my shotgun. Of course, back then we didn't all carry rifles. So I grabbed my shotgun and he jumps out of his car and we start on a foot pursuit. We run right up the stairs to the Grand Lake Lodge, right through the doors into the full uh, dining area and right through the center of the dining area into the kitchen, out the back of the kitchen, back into the forest, where the guy finally prones himself out, and I take him into custody. Then, like a proud dog who just picked up a duck, I walked that guy right back through the kitchen, right back through the dining area, and right down to my patrol truck, my F-150, stuck him in it, and we were off to jail. Found out later that a regular up there in the Grand Lake area uh, named Tim Allen, you might have heard of him, was having lunch in there at the time. So my claim to fame has always been that I've never met Tim Allen, but I'm sure as hell sure he knows who I am. So Tim, if you're ever listening to this podcast, feel free to give me a shout. I'd love to hear that story from your perspective. Yeah, my second pursuit was a terminally ill subject up there. I was on patrol again, and uh, I had received information of a suicidal subject, and it happened to be a gentleman I knew. Because remember, again, the population uh, of Grand Lake or, or Grand County is very small. Grand Lake, which is where I patrolled, was more like 800. So uh, I knew who this gentleman was. I was friends with his family. And he was a terminal uh, kidney patient. And so he had made some suicidal threats. Uh, I went to pull him over, and he takes off on me. Uh, the chase is on. Well, we end up in front of his house. He pulls in the driveway and jumps out and runs into his house. And now I'm sitting out front and he's in his house. Uh, I didn't feel comfortable chasing him in. I think this was probably a very good decision on my part. Uh, as a matter of fact, today I wouldn't even have chased this guy uh, for uh, a welfare check on, a, on suicidal statements. Times were a lot different back in 1999, 2000. At any rate, I did chase him, and we ended up there, and he came out with a long gun and stood on his front porch and was just challenging me to shoot him. Uh, this was definitely a moment when I realized I'm over my head. I'm a brand-new cop. I'm out here on my own, uh, and being a, a deputy in Grand Lake, uh, you are on your own. It was probably 20 minutes before I had a second officer there, and it was everything I could do to talk to this subject and get him to come down off the porch without the gun uh, over the course of that 20 minutes. Uh, just as soon as the second officer arrives, he's coming off the porch and surrendering. Uh, that was a massive learning moment for me when I knew that I had to do a lot more with my tongue 
than I have to do uh, with my gun. Boy, I even got in my first foot pursuit up there, I remember. Uh, and it may be the only foot pursuit to date that I've actually lost. Uh, I'm pretty good at foot pursuits, family. I uh, Even as I've gotten older, uh, not in quite a good a shape, a little heavier, uh, you know what? I can still catch up because I'm pretty good on the obstacles. So uh, when there's a straightaway, they tend to pull away from me. But when there's an obstacle, I tend to make up some ground. So in this case, no obstacles. It was a straightaway. And to make it even worse, it was on a football field. So I could actually measure how badly I was losing as I was losing the foot pursuit. But here it is. It's winter break at 10,000 feet, covered in snow, middle of the night. It's probably negative 15 degrees out. I was not able to keep up with this high school kid who was doing a prank on the on the high school at the time. Uh, and there was a bunch of them up there doing whatever senior prank they were going to be doing. And uh, I took off on foot after this one kid, and he was gone. I, I could not keep up. I actually had to undo my vest in order to breathe. Uh, and then I jumped in a patrol car with somebody Sure, I guess I didn't lose the foot pursuit because we ended up finding the kid. He'd gone to ground just after he got past the football field. He hid underneath of a school bus, and we still picked him up and arrested him for the high crimes of committing a prank on the high school. Again, things things are a little different back in the 2000s and working up in the mountain than, uh, than they are now and working down in the city. But, uh, yeah, good times good times, but I'll never forget losing that foot pursuit. <laughs> and again, thinking, what exactly am I doing here? <laughs> oh man, there was even a time when I left my gun at the jail. I'm sure everybody, uh, well, maybe not everybody, but I'm sure a lot of you have the same story. I was actually back in FTO. Yep. I was back in FTO and we had just made an arrest. Shoot. It might've even been my first arrest. And so we're leaving the jail and I didn't take my gun out of the locker. And, uh, you know, my FTO recognize this. So we get a few miles from the jail and he's trying desperately to find a car for me to stop, uh, before we get 45 minutes from the jail. So he's successful. He finds a car with some minor violation, tells me to stop it. So I stop this car. And as I walk up, I reach back just to give a little touch to my pistol as I'm walking up on the back of the car my heart sinks as I notice that my gun is not in its holster and I know exactly where it is. And now I'm wondering, first of all, am I going to be safe on this traffic stop? Second of all, does my FTO know? And third of all, of course he knows. That's why you're here, you dumbass. I knew exactly that I had been set up at that point. So I go up, I make my first contact. I go back and uh, sit in the car and he just starts laughing at me. He says, go, go up, give her things back. Let's go get your gun. Uh, so a, a situation that I have never done since and I'll never do again. Uh, as a matter of fact, now I put my gun in my trunk like I'm sure many of you do. I don't put it in the Sallyport boxes uh, for just that very reason. I never want to be outside the jail and have to go back, hit the button and say, hey, hey, I, uh, hey, I forgot my gun. So it goes in the trunk. And I'm not going to lie, I've driven out of the jail with it in the trunk, but it's a heck of a lot easier to pull over on the side of the road and stick it in my holster. Yeah, so while I was at Grand County, 9-11 happened. Kind of like Columbine, there's not many pre-9-11 cops left, um, but I'm certainly a pre-9-11 cop. 
Uh, I had a few years under my belt by the time 9-11 happened. And I was, uh, at the time, I was a deputy still in Grand Lake. And I had worked uh, the night shift on September 10th and was at home sleeping. And my wife wakes me up sometime fairly early in the morning, uh, just before the second tower fell. So I, I, I don't know what time that would have been. In mountain time, I want to say about 9.30 or so. It seems like is when I woke up, but I don't really remember. So I woke up. Uh, my wife says that we're under attack and went out, started watching. And this will date 9-11 as well as me. I uh, threw a VHS tape in the in the VCR and started recording the news of the day. And we have like three or four tapes of nonstop coverage of 9-11, which we have never watched since the day we recorded them. I'm not even sure we can watch them now, but we have them. Anyway, that night, uh, at some point, I must have tried to get some sleep because I still had to work uh, September 11th that, that night. So I did. I went to work, and uh, I remember might have been the only call for service that I got that entire shift. A uh, tourist was at one of our higher-end restaurants in the Grand Lake area, and he had ordered uh, a meal. And the meal came with a certain number of things. But one thing that it didn't come with was a baked potato. And he asked that a baked potato be added to his meal. So he gets his meal, he eats his meal, he enjoys his meal. And at the end, he receives his bill. And he's got like an $8 baked potato on his bill. So he refuses to pay for the baked potato. And the waitress says, you have to pay for the baked potato. You ordered it. Well, they go round and round and the sheriff's office gets called. So in walks little deputy rice. And they both bitch to me about what happened. And he says, I'm not paying eight bucks for a baked potato. That's absurd. Uh, I, I asked the gentleman how much the baked potato was on the menu, and he said he never saw it on the menu. And I said, well, then you ordered it. That's what you're going to pay. And he still refused. And in the end, I, I said, sir, thousands of people died today in New York City, and you're arguing over the cost of a baked potato. And he hung his head, pulled out his wallet, got the cash for the baked potato and set it down and walked away and never even said another word. So uh, again, between that and uh, my terminally ill subject with the long gun on his front porch, uh, it was becoming imminently clear to me that your tongue is much more valuable in this job than anything else. That's going to get you out of more jams than many other things. Uh, Sometimes it won't. Sometimes, Sometimes your tongue can actually get you in trouble I uh, I had a felony menacing incident that I had to deal with while I was up in Grand Lake. And uh, for those of you not familiar with Colorado law, felony menacing is basically pointing a gun at somebody or pointing a knife at somebody and causing them fear for the life. So uh, this, again, tourist had uh, rep- called 911 and reported that uh, somebody had pointed a gun at him and told him basically that tourists are ruining Grand Lake and get the hell out. Well, he was able to identify this gentleman. I don't remember now if he had followed him home or how, or if he had a license plate. But at any rate, I knew who had done this, and I went to their house, and I spoke with them. Well, the law at the time was, uh, and it's still the same, was that you uh, can't force entry into somebody's home to arrest them without exigent circumstances. Uh, so I speaking to this gentleman, he's standing inside the threshold of his door and I'm standing 
outside uh, talking to him. And he confesses to me exactly what happened. Uh, so I said, uh, look, could, could we just talk outside? I'm having a hard time talking to you through the door. Can you just come out, stand out here on your front porch, and we'll finish talking and getting out all the information we need. So he comes out onto the front porch on his own at where I commence in, uh, affecting my arrest for felony menacing and take him to jail. Well, that ends up being the first lawsuit that I was named in as a police officer because he says that I coerced him or forced him out of his home against his will. Uh, of course, the lawsuit never went anywhere. We never even had to testify. It was all dropped, but the intent to sue came from that, and that was the first one of those that I was involved in. And that came from me using the power of the tongue. So you just have to, you just have to know everything in this job goes, goes two directions. Um, yeah, but man, I learned a lot in my first couple years and I quickly moved from that naive rookie, uh, through a lot of different steps dealing with death and suicides and natural deaths and, uh, drunk drivers and the disrespect and the respect of the majority of the public, all that came into play uh, up there in Grand County and uh, made for really informative, strong foundation for my career. I actually left uh, patrol in Grand County after a couple years, and I went to um, Gramnet, which was at the time, uh, I don't believe Gramnet still exists. I think they've just changed their name, but it was the Grand Route and Moffitt Narcotics Enforcement Team. And uh, basically, it was the federal drug task force for that area. And the way that it generally worked was that, as you can see, three different counties, Grand, Route, and Moffitt. And uh, it, I was the Grand Deputy. So I would do the undercover buys in the Route and Moffitt areas, and they would do them in my areas. I would be the case agent in the Grand County area, and they would be the case agent in their areas. So, man, it was a long drive to work. I had to drive over to Steamboat, which is a couple hours away every day uh, for my office. One of the one of the drawbacks of working in a really rural area. And I had this really shitty G-Ride. It wasn't even a nice G-Ride. You, you picture a lot of your drug task force guys, and some of you that I know are listening, you have really nice rides. Uh, I had this terrible uh, confiscated G-Ride. This is back when... Uh, you know, we would confiscate those things and the judges would give them to us. And, uh, it was, it was not a fun ride, especially for driving, uh, over the passes over to steamboat every day. And this was also a time when marijuana was still illegal. Uh, so we did a lot of marijuana grows. Um, we did a lot of meth labs. This is when we were still seeing a lot of labs in the, in the area. Uh, labs of, of course are still around, but they've dropped off tremendously since, uh, due to some different laws making labs a little bit more difficult. But uh, yeah, I had a good time making UC buys, making undercover buys. Uh, we even did a sting on some people that said that they uh, wanted to kill some police. We, we actually had, um, unfortunately, had to dispatch a couple of dogs uh, on a raid that we did. And this, uh, this guy was saying he was going to kill uh, two cops for um, both of his dogs. And we actually set up an undercover scenario where we went in and talked with him and uh, tried to set up a murder for hire. And, um, any rate, we were able to determine that he wasn't a legitimate threat to law enforcement anymore. So, uh, he, he wised up, but, uh, yeah, flipping arrestees. Uh, I always loved, um, buying from them and then, um, we would raid the place. And then while they're sitting in jail, wondering how the hell this happened to them, 
I would walk in and, uh, that was always a great feeling. I love doing, I love doing that. And then writing warrants and, and getting really good at warrants, uh, while I was on the drug task force, uh, really understanding criminal procedure and, um, how to articulate different things. Had one case while I was up there, it was a bomb case. And, uh, this guy wanted to blow up his ex-girlfriend and his ex-girlfriend's parents. And he placed a couple little bombs, uh, that had done some damage, but hadn't hurt anybody. And uh, this was my first opportunity to really work with other agencies. So uh, we worked with the ATF and the FBI. Um, shoot, I'm sure probably even some other agencies in there. Uh, but it was a blast. Uh, we set up a really big case on this guy. His property was very tactically sound and difficult to approach. So we waited until uh, we set up surveillance and we waited until uh, everybody that we were aware of had left the property uh, to go to work or to go shopping or wherever they had gone. Our suspect, our target had gone uh, to work. So then we went up, raided the property, uh, looking for uh, evidence of bombs and bomb-making materials. Uh, and we had evidence that that was going to be there. That was part of our warrant. Uh, and we found some of the bomb-making materials, but we, we couldn't find the bombs. Um, despite knowing that they're there, we had all the probable cause uh, in, in the warrant that established that they're here somewhere, but we just couldn't find them. Now, keep in mind, this is, this is probably 30 acres, a bunch of outbuildings, a bunch of, um, dead cars laying around the property and then the main building. So it it was a lot to search and it was wintertime. Everything's covered in snow. What we ended up doing was, uh, I went down to where this guy was working and I took with me, uh, an ATF agent. And he's wearing his ATF jacket. And truthfully, I think the ATF jacket is what uh, is what got our confession. We walked up to the guy. I introduced myself as being with the Grand Route and Moffat Narcotics Enforcement Team. I introduced the uh, special agent as being with the ATF. And we told him we have dogs on his property right now searching for bombs. Well, that was enough. The threat of the dogs and the ATF being on his property he told us where they were at, and, and they were buried in the dirt under the fresh snow out in the middle of nowhere on his property. Uh, but we recovered a ton of bombs, and uh, I was really proud of that case. And I was proud of the opportunity to work so closely with uh, our federal partners. But there came a time when it was time to look at leaving Grand County. As you can imagine, working in Grand County, is uh, it's a tourist community with a very small residential population. Uh, so the uh, cost of living is extraordinarily high. And uh, as you might assume, police officers in that kind of area don't make a whole lot of money. Well, my wife became uh, pregnant and it was uh, time to try and find some more income. So we looked into Grand Junction Police Department um, and I had actually applied there once before uh, on the that initial um, shotgun of uh, applications right out of the academy and I didn't get hired. So the reason I say this is I I want all of you out there who are in the process and trying to get hired and going to the academy to know you can fail. It's okay. Just keep trying. Uh, I went to uh, my first department and at the end of FTO, I said, this isn't for me. And they knew it and I knew it. And uh, that was a hard hit in the nuts. I'm not going to lie, but um, it was okay. It was okay. I, I survived and I have a spectacular 21 year career behind me now. 
Uh, and the same with Grand Junction PD. I didn't get hired, but I applied again and I got hired. So just keep your nose to the ground and keep working at it. Sometimes it's not that you didn't deserve it. It's that they had four positions and you came in fifth. So don't allow yourself to be down because you don't get something the first time. So I got hired with Grand Junction and we go there and um, I had three really great FTOs. Uh, That's how they worked their program was I think it was like four weeks, um, you know, as a standard FTO at the time, uh, four weeks for each one and then a checkout week with the first one. And uh, they were all really great. I hope to have, uh, well, I I would take any of the three of them on this program uh, in the future. Uh, There's at least one I really hope to bring up. But uh, yeah, they they were really great guys, really hard go-getters, and we had a really good time um, in FTO, uh, bringing a guy who had three or four years experience, I think made it a little more fun for them because they didn't have to focus on that first traffic stop, leaving the gun in the jail, uh, all those kinds of issues had already been worked out. And so they got to focus just a little more on helping me get to know Grand Junction and what happens here and how... Uh, their streets are laid out and what their uh, policies are and things like that. But yeah, Grand Junction, we got started in on some crazy stuff. Foot pursuits became commonplace, chasing guys all the time. Uh, I remember uh, one night I was working with a partner. Not sure why. Every now and then we did that. And we drove by this car and the car immediately turned and went into an alley. And we thought, gosh, that's, that's odd. So this is where some of that good seasoned police work starts to come in. You look at something, go, "Eh, that wasn't quite right. So we turned around and we pulled in the alley. And just as soon as we pull in the alley, of course, we come in at a thousand miles an hour, hoping to spot this guy going out the other side. But he had ditched the car just 20 feet into the alley. So we slam on the brakes before we slam into it. And there's uh, six foot privacy fences, uh, picket fences on either side of the alley. And he's not in the alley anymore. So we're trying to figure out where where did he go? Which side of the uh, alley did he jump over? The driver's door is wide open. So just on a hunch, for really no other reason, I went over the uh, fence that was on the passenger side of the car. I just figured, I just felt like he went over that way. So I went over that fence, and as soon as I got over that fence, I heard the four-foot chain link fence on the front of that property rattle. And it was a dark, dark night. So now uh, I go and I jump that fence. And then I hear uh, the four-foot chain link fence on the other side of the street rattle. So I run and I hit that one. And I'm just starting to add and subtract chain link fences. Because now the backyards going across this side of the street are all four-foot metal chain link. So as I hear him hit one, I add one. As I hit one, I subtract one. And we go like that over a few yards. All of a sudden, that number's at zero. We're in the same yard, and it is dark. I have no idea where this guy is, and I'm breathing hard. And I'm trying to control my breath and listen, but I know we're in the same yard. So I stop, stand in the middle of this yard, turn off my light, and I hold my breath. And I listen for him, and I don't hear him. And then all of a sudden, I hear a phone ring, and he's lying about a foot and a half in front of me on the ground. Had I taken one more step, I would have tripped over him, and he's looking straight up at my silhouette. 
I shine my light on him. I yell at him. He rolls over on his back and he's in custody. Yeah, that that foot pursuit was one for the books. Uh, I just remember adding and subtracting fences. And I remember afterwards thinking to myself how controlled that was, more so than my previous two or three foot pursuits that I'd been in up to this point, how I felt like I was in control, even though I couldn't see. I was doing something with my brain and I was engaged and I wasn't just maxed out excited. I was focused and that's why I caught him, didn't run past him, didn't lose him. I was listening for those chain links and it was a moment in my career when I realized I had kind of moved forward. Had another foot pursuit a short time later where I Basically rode the suspect down to the ground. Uh, he had turned and tousled with me for a little bit. I tried to tase him. It didn't work. Um, we rolled around a little bit together before he was able to get up and get, keep running from me. Well, I got up and I kept running, and he started to lose gas as he's crossing this uh, this street that was freshly chip-sealed. Uh, but I'm coming full barrel still, and I realize I'm almost out of gas. But if I can keep the gas on for just another second, I'm going to have this guy. So, of course, I tackle him, but we're right in the middle of this street, and as he starts to go to the ground and my arms are wrapped around the front of him, I realize I don't want my arms underneath this guy when we hit this chip seal. So I yanked my arms back and basically rode him like a surfboard across that chip seal road. And, uh, yeah, that's the cost of doing business. You know, he's he had opportunity after opportunity to go down on the grass or to stop or to never run in the first place. Uh, I'm just glad that I was far enough into my career at that point that I recognized the potential hazard and uh, removed myself before I got hurt. And then maybe one of my favorite foot pursuits was a shoplifter from a little store called Skaggs. Uh, those of you that remember Skaggs, basically like a like a local pharmacy, local drugstore. And uh, so I got in one door, and just as I'm going in that door, the the uh, clerk yells out, "He's there! He is over there!" Going out the other door. So the guy has oh good. 40 foot head start on me and he starts out the other door and across the parking lot and I start out and I chase him behind him calling out the foot pursuit we run across one road and uh into the into a yard of a house across the street and here we are again looking at those four foot chain link fences and he hits that four foot chain link fence oh 20 30 feet in front of me and he gets hung up on it He's trying to climb over it or jump over it, but it's just high enough that it hangs him up for a second. And he actually falls on his back on the inside of the chain link fence. Well, I ran up and I opened the gate that he had tried climbing over and uh, put him in custody. So I didn't have to jump over the fence because there was a gate there. And that's really, I think, when I realized that uh, bad guys get jazzed too. They're not thinking clear. Um, They're thinking kind of like that rookie cop because... Uh, I got news for you. No matter how bad the bad guy is, they probably haven't ran from the cop more than a couple of times. Uh, but we've been in dozens and dozens and dozens of foot pursuits ourselves. And so we're better at it. Uh, yeah, we got more gear on and we might not be in as good a shape, but our minds are a lot more clear than the bad guy who's trying to get away, uh, who jumps the fence instead of opening the gate. That was another kind of eye opening moment for me when I realized kind of moving forward in my career. Come about 2004, uh, there was a pretty major incident at uh, the Grand Junction Police Department. I had been a decoy for the K-9 unit uh, for quite a while at this point. Uh, I had a really good relationship with the K-9s and the K-9 handlers. And uh, my best friend at the time on the department um, 
was, he was not a canine officer, but he was out with uh, the canine officers and they were uh, serving a warrant. Well, the warrant went bad. Uh, the guy they were looking for came out the window with a gun. Shots were fired and Garrow, uh, our canine, went down at the end of his leash and uh, never came back up. So uh, that was the first experience I had, even though it was a dog and not a human, of uh, being close and personal to uh, uh, an officer down. Uh, I was on duty at the time, and I was uh, probably pretty close to the next one there. Uh, it's hard to say because within seconds there was dozens of police there. Uh, but uh, I was there right away, and uh, we held perimeter. Uh, we heard the final shot uh, from inside the residence where the suspect took his own life. Um, but again, uh, just another step in the growth of a, of a law enforcement officer. Shortly after that, the Grand Junction Police Department wanted to start an honor guard. And uh, again, uh, probably for the same reason that I was president of my academy class, uh, I was uh, tapped on the shoulder for uh, assistance with the honor guard. So I helped uh, pick our uniforms and get all that set up, helped train up the initial honor guard on uh, marching and rifle drill. And uh, boy, what an honor. What an honor that was and remains to this day. Uh, obviously, I'm, I'm not on it still, um, but anytime I see them uh, in their uniforms, I take a great deal of pride in the formation of that honor guard. Uh, we formed uh, shortly before the Tacoma Four. If you remember uh, the four officers in Tacoma, Washington, uh, I believe it was actually Lakewood, Washington, uh, who were having a briefing in a coffee shop uh, in the morning and somebody came in and shot, um, shot them all uh, as they sat drinking coffee. And this was really um, the beginning of what I saw as the attack on police. Uh, there's, as, as I've been with the Blue Family Tree and been doing research uh, and studying line of duty death, I have found, um, of course, attacks on law enforcement just for being in law enforcement that date much further back. But this was really the modern day uh, first big attack on law enforcement. And uh, I had the, the privilege of driving up to Tacoma and being a part of that, being a part of that funeral. Um, you know, some of the things that happened while I was at, at uh, Grand, Junction, Grand Junction Police Department was community policing. Community policing was tremendous uh, at the time. It's what, it's what all the buzzwords were about. It's what uh, we did in Grand Junction uh, in the 2000s. And I had this house that became my project. This house uh, was in a very nice neighborhood, uh, but they were dealing drugs. Uh, they were violating municipal ordinances and their, and their, on their property. Uh, and if you looked at a map of crime in the area, you could see a spider web of crime leading straight to this house uh, from theft from autos and burglaries and eluding police. There was even some ties to uh, a murder that led back to this house. And um, all this was very circumstantial, but it was clear that this house was a nuisance for this relatively well-to-do neighborhood. Uh, so it became my community policing issue to solve. And I took a great deal of pride again in uh, treating it a lot like I did the bomb um, case up in Grand County. I worked with a lot of other agencies, uh, even the power companies, um, to try and just drive this uh, party out of this house. And eventually that's exactly what we did. Uh, he's in prison now uh, for 
many things related and many things not related, but uh, ultimately my goal was to improve the value of life, uh, the enjoyment of life in these neighborhoods surrounding this house and mission was accomplished. So uh, I know a lot of officers who have less than positive things to say about community policing. I think anything with a model like that, where we try and put names and titles on things and try and do things in a box, uh, it fails. But the concept behind community policing, where the police are the community and the community are the police, God rest his soul, Robert Peel, uh, I think there's really something to that. And uh, this was great evidence of that. This is one of many things that I did in the community policing model that I really enjoyed. What I didn't enjoy was checking boxes, going to a meeting just to go to a meeting so that I could say I did my community policing drive. Uh, but when I actually got behind helping the community and having the community help me and we worked together as a team, community policing was a really great model. I got my first shooting while I was in Grand Junction too. Uh, there was a, a guy that had gotten pulled over early in the morning and my partner, I was on day shift, so I call him my partner because he, he works for my agency, but uh, my partner had pulled him over like 3 in the morning or 3.30 in the morning and uh, he had a temp tag that was unlegible. And so he went up, got an ID, verbal ID from the guy, knew right away that it was a, a bogus name and date of birth. So he goes back to the car he runs it, of course, comes back, no record. He asks for a second unit, second unit shows up. And the lesson that I learned from this, even though I wasn't there, was I will always go up a step ahead of my primary officer when I cover. I'll go up on the passenger side and I'll be a step ahead because of this. So cover shows up and covers walking up just a step ahead of the primary officer on the driver's side. And he sees through the window that the guy he's got pulled over has a gun in his right hand, curled up on his chest, pointed out the driver's window, waiting for that officer to return. He yells, gun, startles the guy. The guy drops the gun and puts the car in drive and drives off. So, of course, we hear about this in briefing. And uh, uh, I have volunteer and I'm assigned to uh, spend the day off the call load looking for this guy. Well, sure enough, uh, long story short, we end up finding him. Uh, we get in a, in a vehicle pursuit, uh, which ends in a crash, which then ends in a barricaded subject inside a crashed car, which then ends in shots being exchanged. And uh, that was uh, my first my first opportunity at uh, such an event. And uh, I knew instantly that uh, shots were going to be fired. There was very little question in my mind uh, that shots were, were, were not going to be fired. Uh, before this was over. That being said, there's been a number of times throughout my career where I was certain we were going to be in a shooting and we weren't. But I've learned to not ignore that, to not talk myself out of it. If I believe I'm going to be in a shooting, I'm going to allow myself to believe that until it's proven otherwise. Um, just a few weeks ago, uh, I was on the scene of a shooting and I knew, I knew minutes before the shooting occurred, that this was a bad situation and that a shooting was very likely to occur. I don't allow myself to ignore that feeling and I don't allow myself to talk myself out of it. Uh, I just have to recognize it and, uh, and be aware that there's a very real possibility here. One thing that uh, came about somewhere about that same area, uh, the media fell in love with me. 
I'm not sure exactly why, although I've been told it's my legs. Uh, of course, maybe not today, but back in the day when I was a 20-something-year-old cop uh, with Grand Junction Police Department, they actually allowed us to wear shorts, and I, I enjoyed the shorts. So uh, I seem to find myself gracing the front page of the local newspaper quite a bit uh, because of that, I think. So at any rate... That brings me to the traffic unit. I worked at the traffic unit, the fatal traffic unit for Grand Junction. We did all the fatal crash investigations and serious crash investigations. We even had all the gear and technology to do some of the bigger homicide scenes. Uh, so we would occasionally get to dapper and things outside of uh, outside of crashes as far as the investigations go. But uh, our boss, he told us to think outside the box. And so having kind of a love affair with the media at the time, uh, we came up with this idea that we were going to uh, incorporate some of the local transient population and transient culture into some red light enforcement. Uh, the idea was actually that we would rather not write a ticket and just curb the behavior than write a ticket after the behavior has occurred. Uh, which one's safer? Which one's providing more safety to the public? Stopping the behavior before it happens? Or punishing the behavior after? Well, in my book, stopping the behavior before it happens is a better way to go. It's safer for the public. So we had a major intersection in Grand Junction where we had a lot of red light runners. And it was dangerous. We had crashes there all the time for people running red lights. So uh, I didn't really feel like we should be sitting nearby watching people run the red light and then writing them tickets or potentially covering a crash. I thought we should give people plenty of warning so that they know um, not to run the red light. So I set up with a cardboard sign, and uh, I dressed in civilian clothes and put on a, a hat to keep myself warm, and I got a cardboard sign that said, uh, and my hat, by the way, had a badge on it. Um, civilian clothes, but a hat with a badge, and said GJPD, and the sign that I was holding said, uh, don't run red lights, my partners are waiting. And I had a bunch of partners uh, sitting up on the other side of the light. So if you ran the red light, they were there waiting for you. And I just radioed ahead and said, there's one there. And they'd go pick them up. But the motoring public that stopped at the red light and read my sign loved it. They absolutely loved it. Uh, it hit the media. The media came down and, and interviewed us. And the red light problem, at least for a few months, dropped because they never knew where we would be working and what we would be wearing or you know it was another element of surprise and risk to the driver because they didn't know where we would be and it brought the community together with the traffic unit for a little bit of time it was thinking outside the box it almost got us in a little bit of trouble until the media loved it and everything turned out really well but uh my advice to you younger guys that are looking to do something outside the box would be just make sure you got the right administration for the job you want to do. Well, after that, sometime along the way, I realized I was starting to get kind of burnt out. I just wasn't feeling the job anymore, and I realized that I had been a cop my entire life, and I wanted to see what else I could do. So I left. I went to the private sector for a short bit. And I realized in the private sector, I will always be a cop, even when I'm not a cop. I'll go somewhere and I'll be talking to somebody and it'll come up that I'm a cop because probably I'm acting like a cop. 
and I'm just always going to be a cop. So I found my way back uh, in short order to the Colorado State Patrol. And the Colorado State Patrol is one of those agencies in Colorado that requires you to go through their academy. So even though I had been a post-certified police officer for, oh, 13 years at this point, um, they required me to go back to their academy, and uh, the State Patrol has a live-in academy. So it wasn't even a Monday through Friday, 8 to 5, uh, although it, it kind of was. Uh, occasionally it went later in the evenings, but it was live-in. So they would get us up at 4 in the morning, uh, rattling cans and yelling at us and have us make our bed, and a lot like boot camp was, uh, which, of course, I had been through. So boot camp is a lot different when you are 18 years old and you can't get away from it. Uh, you're off in San Diego, uh, in my case, and uh, it's 24-7, literally 24-7. Uh, even when you're asleep, they could be coming in. Uh, it's all the time, every day of the week, and you're 18, and the pressure is on. The pressure is on nonstop. Uh, the State Patrol Academy, they try and mimic some of that and try and create some of that, and maybe they're successful for people who have never been through that kind of scenario. But uh, the truth of the matter is, unless they want to pay you uh, your hourly wage for 24 hours a day, they have to let up at some point. So uh, some nights they would go late, and we would get paid late. And we would, you know, we'd go till 8, 9, 10 at night, maybe midnight on a rare occasion, uh, and then we'd be back up at 5 or 6 in the morning. But they couldn't actually have any impact on us all throughout the night. Um, and then, of course, on the weekends, uh, after Friday afternoon came, we were off and we could go home to our families and we would come back on Monday. Uh, so the pressure was completely off. And without being able to keep up that standard solid pressure all the time uh, the, and being 10, 12, 15 years older than those 18-year-old Marine Corps boots, uh, it just wasn't quite the same. But nevertheless, it was an experience, something I had to go through. And I almost kind of felt like a live-in instructor. There was a few other laterals in there. Uh, I call them laterals just because we had experience. But, of course, it wasn't a lateral academy. We didn't get any credit for our previous experience. Uh, but there was a few of us in there that had some experience. I had the most experience, uh, of course, out of anyone in the academy. And uh, the vast majority of the people there had no experience. So uh, it was an opportunity for me to kind of sharpen my skills and become somewhat of an instructor, a mentor. And what a big turning point in my career, which is what we're all about today, is looking at those points in the career where we notice a change or an adjustment in ourselves and how the mentality of a rookie cop and a salty old uh, retired cop are two different things. Um, and it was an opportunity for me to see I really enjoyed being a mentor, teaching younger cops how to be good cops, not just the law and procedure, but how to be good cops. And I really enjoyed that, and I'm really proud of the troopers that uh, were produced out of my academy. Um, I can't call them my troopers, but I kind of feel like they're my troopers. Uh, I'm very proud of them, and I, I feel like they're my, they're my children sometimes. And now they're nearly decade-old cops themselves. Uh, they've got plenty of their own experiences. They've done a lot of things I haven't done out there on their own as well. So, you know, they're, they're certainly my equal. Um, but uh, at the time, I really enjoyed the opportunity to grow them up and help them uh, get off on the right foot to start their career. And I really think 
that that was a big part of what pushed towards the blue family tree was starting to recognize the fulfillment that I could get out of helping police be better at their jobs. Uh, and then just recognizing that I had the knowledge to be able to do that. Uh, sometimes when you live a certain life, you feel like everybody knows the same things that you know. Uh, and you have to step back and realize, you know, uh, whatever your job is, uh, you're a CPA. You have to realize after 10 years as a CPA, you know things that brand new CPAs don't know. Uh, you're an RN in an ER. You're a, a grocery store clerk. You're a banker. W- whatever your job is, you you think that, you know, with your decades of experience, the things you know everybody knows, uh, but they don't. And it's there's a point when you realize the people in your position uh, don't know the same things you do and an opportunity comes along to instruct and make the future generation of your profession better. And uh, in my case, I enjoyed that opportunity. Well, after I got with the state patrol and got through the police academy, I got assigned back to the Grand Junction area. So fortunately, I didn't have to uproot and move my family. I got to stay right where I was. And I got to work with some of the police officers and sheriff's deputies in this area that I've been working with for the last decade. Uh, I was very fortunate that it worked out the way it did. Well, a good friend of mine uh, named Derek Gear, uh, he was a sheriff's deputy with Mesa County, which is the county where Grand Junction is and where I was working as a trooper. And uh, we had worked together for, oh, more than 10 years. Uh, we were good work friends. We enjoyed each other's company. We would pull up next to each other and, and talk in the middle of the night. Uh, We've been on a number of calls together. Uh, that's the kind of friends we were. Uh, we didn't know each other outside of work, but um, I still considered him a very good friend, and I, I enjoyed spending time around him. Well, Derek was uh, shot to death uh, in February of 2016, um, and that was a rough day for local law enforcement. Uh, there hasn't been uh, law enforcement fatality um, aside from Garrow, uh, in the Grand Junction area in anybody's career. Um, the last one for, for anything here was long before anybody who's on the street now was around. So uh, that was a big moment. And it was an opportunity for me to see another place where uh, I could have some impact and some change. At this point, I've been to so many police funerals. And I I hate going, but I love going. I love the opportunity to show uh, honor and respect uh, for the fallen and to uh, offer my hand to um, the family for anything they need. But that was just it. It was just an offer. Uh, I love the offer. I love making the offer. And if they were ever to call me, I, I would have certainly dropped anything and responded to the call, the call for help, um, even as far as Tacoma, Washington. Uh, if for some reason, out of the tens of thousands of police there, uh, those any of those widows or family members called me in Grand Junction, Colorado and said, Pat, we need you to come up here and mow our lawn, I probably would have done it because there must be a good reason why they're calling. But that being said, I, I realized after Derek passed just how often I had made that offer and never been taken up on it. And I, I know that there's there's tens of thousands of officers out there that have done the same and never been taken up on it. And so here's an area where maybe we can try and include the families of our fallen a little bit more. Uh, they're they're just like us. They have live, lived a life that's led them to somewhat of an isolation. 
Uh, they know that if we disappear in the grocery store, there's a reason for it. Um, they know not to ask some questions uh, about work and that we'll share what we can. Um, they understand the lifestyle. Uh, cop kid, come on. If you have a cop kid, you know that they live a different life. They are exposed to different criticisms at school, uh, especially in today's world where cops cops are, is what all the talk is about in school. They all are talking about how uh, all cops are bastards and cops are murdering black people in the streets and uh, our kids have to deal with that and sometimes defend it and sometimes sink back in a hole and pretend like uh, they're not there. So for them to lose their dad, their husband, their mom, their wife, whatever the case is, and also lose their only social attachment to the lifestyle that's been created for them, they, they lose a lot more than just a parent or a spouse. They, they're losing they're losing their entire social circle that they connect with. Uh, and I realized that after Derek passed and I felt like that was somewhere else we could have an impact. Well, it wasn't too far after Derek, just a handful of months later, the attack on police really ramped up. Uh, there was the five in Dallas at the black lives matter rally. And then, uh, just a few days later, there was, I think it was three in Baton Rouge, three or four in Baton Rouge, um, there was a few in Arkansas, um, and it just kept going. Uh, cops being killed just for being cops all over the country, back up in Washington and Oregon, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, the trooper, trooper barracks. It just ramped up so fast attacks on law enforcement just for being law enforcement, uh, in 2016 and, uh, not far behind came the blue family tree. So I created the blue family tree, but I still worked for the state patrol. And, uh, I, I, uh, had always wanted to be on the motors. So I applied for and got accepted to the motor unit and passed that course, probably the hardest course I've done in my entire career of law enforcement. Uh, but very rewarding, became really good on a motorcycle and, uh, very, very proud of that position. That was a lot of fun. Did a lot of extra assignments. Again, did a lot of funeral detail, uh, under the motors. Uh, I was in a crash on my motor. I thought for sure my wife was going to have me hang it up. Um, I called her and I said, I'm on my way to the emergency room. I'm okay, but I'm on my way to the emergency room. I got hit. And uh, I think even before we hung the phone up, I think the first thing she said was, are you sure you're okay? And the second thing was, how long before they get you another motor? And, and that's when I realized my wife has grown in this career too. She's She's no longer that salt that 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 uh, rookie wife. She is that salty wife. Uh, she's in it for the long haul. Does she want me to be dead and collect the benefit? I, I'm not real sure uh, with how fast she wanted me to get back on the motor, but I don't think that's the case at all. She wanted uh, to make sure that my career was moving forward how I wanted it to move forward. She was supporting me uh, to any cost, and uh, it was evident that she has been around the block. Uh, of law enforcement just as long as I have and uh, her her encouragement uh, for me to get back on the bike was tremendous of course uh, state patrol did get me a bike probably within uh, two weeks and I was right back up and riding so uh, they were really good about it as well but as time went on I started to really have a lot of pain in my back uh, I had the same I had the old the old cop back from getting in and out of the patrol car wearing a duty belt uh, chasing people, rolling around on the ground, 
you know, everything that we go through and put on our back uh, for 20 years at this time, it was probably 17 or 18 years, and uh, my back had had it, and swinging my leg up and over the bike every day, a um, number of times every day, and then sitting on the bike and the vibrations of the bike. Uh, after just a few years, I think about four years on the bike, I had to hang it up uh, and get back in a car, which wasn't any better or not a lot better, but at least I knew I wasn't going to have numb legs and, and just fall right off the bike because I couldn't even feel my legs. Uh, then I started, obviously, uh, dealing with some of the issues of an old cop, uh, not always being in the best of health anymore and having to watch those things and make sure that I'm taking care of myself so that I can be effective on the road. Um uh, and that's, I think that's when I look back on my career first and realized I have gone the full cycle all the way through and I still have 15 years to go. So I'm um, trying to nurse it along and take good care of myself, uh, trying to make the career last uh, without any more burnouts and without um, physically being incapable before I reach the end and still having enough uh, left in me at the end that I can rob that pension bank myself. When I leave at 60, I don't want to be completely uh, tanked out and have nothing left. I want to be able to go and enjoy life. And uh, riding that motor for another 15 years uh, wasn't going to make that a very viable option. So hung up the motor and went back to just patrol. I love patrol, but I found myself doing the same thing that I was doing at the academy and just monitoring, uh, maybe not so much teaching, but monitoring uh, how guys are doing things, making sure people are being safe, making sure people are uh, their heads are in the game, and basically taking that blue family tree position and just um, looking out for my guys and making sure that people are uh, are following all the rules how they're supposed to, and everybody's uh, staying safe, not getting hurt, and making making it home at the end of their shift. So when we talk about the life cycle of a police officer, that excited rookie that wants to go out and just clean up the streets and take care of every problem there is on day one of uh, being on their own to somewhere in the middle where they just don't care anymore and uh, they are only here because they need to collect a paycheck on through to pulling through that and finding themselves in a position where they enjoy being the senior officer and looking out for guys and helping young guys stretch through and have good rewarding careers without getting hurt, without finding themselves on officer down memorial page. Man, it's quite the journey. And I wish I would have listened to the guys that were 20 years in when I was one year in, just like I know that the guys that are one year in right now aren't going to be listening to me but maybe if somebody takes any grain of, of advice or criticism and it makes their career better, then it's all been worthwhile. And I have the unique pleasure of being behind this microphone and doing this podcast and doing a monthly news article and raising money for families of fallen peace officers through the Blue Family Tree where I can actually see some of that reward. I don't have to wonder if I actually helped an officer uh, and if I only helped one, it was worth it. I, I get the opportunity to see and to know that uh, what I am doing is helping officers with their careers further down the road. And uh, since I can see that from where I sit, I, I can tell you, uh, you 15-year, 20-year guys with more to go, it's not just me. 
you're doing the same thing for your guys, even though you don't see it. It's happening. You're a positive encouragement and a role model in their lives. Think back to the 15, 20-year guys when you were one to five years and what kind of impact they had on you and still have on you today, even though they're long gone. And just know that they didn't know for sure. They just had to make that assumption that if I helped one guy, if I was able to change something for one guy or make one guy think more clearly about something and it might have saved his life. And if that was enough encouragement for them to think if, 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 I'm here to tell you, you're doing the same thing for for the younger guys now uh, because I've seen it myself firsthand. And uh, and it's not just me. It's got to be anybody who's in that kind of position. So, Young guys, keep at it. Stay strong. Keep your head down. Don't burn yourselves out too fast. Pay attention to those times in your career when things change, when you recognize that you had a first or you recognize that you did something really well skilled. Take pride in that. Know that it's okay for you to recognize that something went really awesome this time and remember that and use it next time. And eventually you'll grow to the point where You're looking back on your career and saying, I want to make sure other people learn some of the things that I've learned along the way and maybe learn it a little bit earlier in their career so they can enjoy it longer. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Blue Family Tree podcast. Be sure to like and subscribe for future episodes. You can listen to us on iTunes and Spotify and, of course, thebluefamilytree.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Remember, our primary mission is to provide families of fallen peace officers with a financial gift made up collectively from law enforcement families and close law enforcement supporters from around the country through small monthly donations. Learn how you can contribute to our collective gift at thebluefamilytree.org. And until next time, stay safe. You're listening to the Blue Family Tree Podcast.